By official count, roughly 15 million American children, more than one out of every six, live beneath the poverty line. But the number living with significant deprivation, insufficient food, seriously overcrowded housing, and a lack of access to medical care due to costs is actually much higher. In fact, according to the latest studies, it's more like one in three. In his latest book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty, veteran journalist and economic analyst Jeff Madrick reveals the often invisible reality and irreparable damage of child poverty in the United States, one of the richest countries in the world. It's published by Knopf, and I'm very pleased that it brings Jeff Madrick to our show now. And I'm very happy to be here, Leonard. Thank you. Uh, You point out that the U.S. actually has the highest rates of child poverty and deprivation among the wealthy countries in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. I'll bet most people are surprised when they hear that. Well, the reason I wrote the book in the first place is people don't seem to be very, don't seem to be very aware of this. In fact, they're not aware of this at all. Uh, and and as an example, why do you think that is? I think we don't like poverty. Mm-hmm. We don't believe in poverty. We have a, a serious uh, desire to minimize the issue. And let me just say this and emphasize this. I don't think people even believe there are poor children. And if they're poor, they'll manage somehow. Now, you opened your book with a discussion of Michael Harrington's The Other America, which called attention to a general poverty rate of about 25% in 1952. It alerted the public to the fact that a significant number of their fellow Americans were struggling to survive. And didn't that lead to LBJ's war on poverty? Directly, and which, and you, know, I, you, I would hope information now about the dire straits of poor children in America would have some impact on the policymakers in in Washington. <clears throat> uh, uh, Harrington's book led was a main contributor to the war on poverty, and the war on poverty, despite all the criticism, worked. It got poverty rates way down, child poverty rates way down, and the idea that it failed is propaganda. Well, haven't other social programs also, like the Earned Income Tax Credit and Child Tax Credit, been enacted since then? Uh, Were they intended to bring the rate down even more? Well, the rate went up, and then these these policies were instituted. Partly these policies were instituted because America reached a stage where it really didn't like welfare. It wanted to attach help to poor people to work, You had to work to get help. That really decimated the poor. First of all, there were no jobs, and when you got them, they were poorly paid. And right now we're seeing more legislation along those lines being proposed. Um, Uh, The Trump administration is declaring war on the poor. Well, has it mattered whether a Republican or Democrat has been in the White House, Ronald Reagan, or Bill Clinton, for that matter, his welfare bill? Well, it certainly mattered in the good old days, as we might call them, when Johnson was running the government. Uh, he FDR worked, earlier, I assume. FDR earlier, of course, and actually the president's all the way through, but not as aggressively as LBJ. He took very serious steps towards cre- to, to, uh, to deal with the poor. Since then, it hasn't been that way, and indeed Clinton, a Democrat, basically passed a Republican welfare reform. It required work. It didn't establish jobs, which he said he was going to do to accompany this plan. And and wh- why was that? Was he being pressured, or yeah, simply he was his pressured politically, or so he believed. 
He wanted to triangulate. He wanted to appeal to Republicans. And, you know, the Democrat, many Democrats believed welfare was a problem. Many Democrats, in fact, believed welfare caused welfare through shirking of work, through having more children. The, the concept that the poor are caught in a culture of poverty in which single parenthood and crime predominate. You, you uh, mentioned that Americans have been resistant to adequate uh, uh, poverty policies because of a strain of thinking that the poor are responsible for their situations no matter their suffering. Indeed, that's a long-standing cultural habit we have in America. They don't work hard enough? Or, they don't work uh, hard enough. Bad decisions? If they did work hard enough, they wouldn't be poor. Uh, it's an indiv extreme individualism. The individual is entirely responsible for himself. And that aid, depending on government, is its own problem. It also ignores the fact that corporations often want poor people in the economy, often want low-paid people to reduce their own wage bills. Also, um, one of the more hidden aspects of this is that um, um, most of the poor are imagined to be non-white and living off of welfare. So um, does it come down to that the poverty-stricken are undeserving of compassion or assistance because they're responsible for their own fate and therefore have to accept the consequences? I think there are two issues here. There is this ideology in America that they are responsible no matter their ethnic uh, background. But especially since the 1960s and the Johnson War on Poverty, poverty became associated with black people. I point out a number of statistics that I think are quite alarming, especially about the media and how the media used black people to represent the poor, when in fact there are more white poor than there are black poor. The evidence for prejudice against blacks uh, is extraordinary. And any idea that prejudice has been diminished or eradicated, indeed, is preposterous. And the Obama claim that we were in, a, I don't think he said this directly, but the implication that we were in a post-prejudice era mm. is simply nonsense. Well, as we've seen over the last three years. But um, uh, it, does it matter whether we're talking about people living in the cities or or in the rural areas? Uh, you, the poverty rates are very high in rural areas, but they're very high in urban areas as well. Oh, well, regardless of who's responsible, uh, are, the children aren't responsible, and your book is about uh, the, the, how children suffer. I'm glad you bring that up, Leonard, because that's precisely why I wrote the book. It's not their fault. It's hard to use the old claims that the poor should be responsible for themselves against children. And more to the point, not more to the point, a main point is that we can do something about child poverty. We don't have to correct poverty in general or completely. We can take care of these kids, and we're not. Children are the poorest people in America, far poorer than the elderly. The, than the elderly, because the children are in poor families, and poor they're families. at the bottom of the line. And they don't get Social Security. I mean, <laughs> the elderly get a very generous state plan. I should emphasize this, because I think people don't get it when we compare our poverty rate to international poverty rates. Our poverty rate, depending on how you measure it, but by and large is about half what it is in Western Europe and Canada and some other places. Half. Yet our economy 
doesn't produce more poor children than their economies do. They produce as about as many poor children, given their populations, as we do. The difference is state intervention, state policies. That's a very important point to understand. Well, the, the, uh, there's a whole myth of the welfare freeloaders, and that's been used by Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, it goes on and on. I mean, people who want to tell you stories about it, somebody who's buying champagne with food stamps and so on. It's really uh, something the that welfare queens. Me, yeah. Well, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump is not the first great liar as president. Ronald Reagan was pretty darn good. And while there was a welfare queen, a woman, he cited, he so flagrantly exaggerated how much money she was making on Social Security and how many apartments she had and so forth. It was outrageous. But there were billionaires who played the system as well and uh, don't pay taxes or pay very few, little tax in taxes. Almost by definition, billionaires are suspect. I don't mean that entirely, and I don't want to undermine my own credibility. I believe people deserve their wealth if they contribute substantially to the economy. But tricks, especially in our time, are played, uh, are played, many of these people play tricks. Now, when you were writing your columns for the New York Times, was, was this an issue even then, or is this something that you become more concerned about What happened, I think, yeah, it was an issue, but we weren't all aware of it, and I wasn't entirely Because you blamed the media earlier. I blamed the media of the the, uh, 90s, yes, Mm -hmm. for pinning it on black people. We knew that there was prejudice against black people. The child poverty issue became more obvious as more international organizations worked on it, like UNICEF, like the Luxembourg Income Study, and several very good economists in America, such as Tim Smeeting, they began to do international comparisons that showed our poor children were in deep trouble. At a rally in St. Charles, Missouri, two years ago, President Trump said, I'm quoting, but welfare reform, I see it, and I've talked to people. I know people. They, they work three jobs, and they live next to somebody who doesn't work at all. And the person who's not working at all and has no intention of working at all is making more money and doing better than the person that's working his or her ass off. And that's not going to change. It's not going, not going to happen. Deeply the crowd misleading. loved it. Deeply misleading nonsense. Tragic, really. We have two welfare programs left, uh, food stamps and TANF, which is the welfare reform, which now only about 25% of poor people get. It used to be 65%. I'm using rough numbers. Let me make this point very clear. Together, TANF and, and food stamps, on average, come to 55% of the poverty line. And something we should also talk about, the American poverty line is very low. In some states, it's only 30%. So the idea that people on welfare are doing better than someone has one job or two or three jobs is, uh, is devious nonsense. Last, just last Friday, uh, a federal appeals court upheld a lower court decision that blocked state requirements that people must work in order to receive Medicaid. The case was brought by residents of Kentucky and Arkansas against Secretary of Health and Human Services Alan Azar because he had approved Medicaid uh, demonstration requests for, for Kentucky and Arkansas. 
the uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the District of Columbia Circuit wrote that the secretary's authorization was unlawful. So this is also a matter of law. It's not just a matter of opinion. Good for that. Good for the judiciary this time around. They've been doing okay, the judiciary, but as you go higher up the ladder, we, get, we have more to worry about. But obviously the Trump administration, as I say, is declaring a war, war on the poor. The Republicans in Congress, and along with Trump, want to raise work requirements to get food stamps uh, and to get Medicaid. It's outrageous. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate, talking with Jeff Madrick, a former economics columnist for the New York Times and a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and The Nation, and the author of, well, his latest book. How many books have you written so far? Well, depend on how, depending on how you measure it, you've seven to ten. How I much? I have a couple of co-authors. Yeah. Seven books with a soul, uh, solely, and a few others with co-authors. And this book is from Knopf. It's called Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, listener-sponsored radio. You describe the, the consequences of growing up poor, um, how living in poverty, even temporarily, is detrimental to cognitive abilities, emotional control, and poor children are less healthy than the rest of the young population. Uh, wasn't the Affordable Care Act intended to correct at least some of that? It did correct some of it. didn't correct enough of it. But, you know, poor people can't even get to a place to use their Medicaid often. It's very expensive. Rural areas are particularly uh, difficult geographically to get to the doctor. Uh, but there is a mountain of evidence going back before the Affordable Care Act that shows that poverty itself is detrimental to kids cognitively, emotionally, and as you say, health-wise. The health care, we still have the highest uh, infant mortality rate in the rich world. And they also drop out of school at higher rates, earn less money over their lifetimes, and are incarcerated far more often. Absolutely. The evidence is uh, undeniable about this. You know, it is very hard to be a poor kid in America. And I think if I have any influence whatsoever with this book, I want to show people that it's hard to be poor. And I'm using evidence here, not merely anecdote, but evidence about how they suffered. Poor kids suffer. They're in pain. They're in emotional pain, physical pain. You cite a 2013 review of dozens of studies by the London School of Economics researchers that, that found that poor children have worse cognitive, social, behavioral, and health outcomes in part because they're poorer and not just because poverty is correlated with other household and parental characteristics. This is a very important point because people will say, even uh, progressive people will say, well, it's not just poverty. It's not just low incomes. It's the way they are brought up. It's the neighborhoods they live in. Uh, it, what researchers have shown, and this is very important to a thesis my own thesis, researchers have shown very clearly that money alone matters. I could use, give you a couple of examples if we have a Please. moment. The most, the most famous of them was the Cherokee Indians who, uh, who put, uh, in North Carolina established a casino that did very well. They distributed $5,000 a year to each kid 
in their community, to the families of each kid in their community. They did analysis, researchers did analysis later, and their cognitive and emotional experiences were far better. They stayed in school longer. Many went to college compared to uh, former years. Their incarceration rate was much lower, and they made more money. They had higher wages over time once they did get into the workforce. So was Elizabeth Warren involved with that Indian tribe? Uh, forget the bad joke. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth, if you're listening, please talk more about child poverty. <laughs> Uh, today, the official poverty line for a family of four in the United States is about $26,200. But did um, a Gallup survey seven years ago find that people think a family of four must earn $58,000 on average just to get by? Yep. That's so it would be even by. higher today. Right, the get-by estimate. So uh, you didn't have to use that as a poverty estimate, but it shows you, I think, how divorced people are from any understanding of how people live in America, how many poor people there are, and how poor is poor. Well, you talked about a program that gave uh, families $5,000 per child. Right. Wouldn't a family with two children improve a standard of living immediately if it received three to $400 a month per child under the age of 18? That's my program. That's my recommendation. That's why we, I brought it up. <laughs> we, can, we can deal with this problem almost immediately and fairly radically with a cash allowance paid to the families per poor child. We should probably, the best, most efficient way is to pay a cash allowance for all, all children, make it taxable, so higher income people actually have to pay taxes on it. That would be a very efficient way to do it. And people who are above the poverty line need money, too. The poverty line is very low in America. So where would that money go? Would it uh, uh, be spent on the obvious stuff like food, heat, eyeglasses, regular doctor's visits, transportation? Or even moving to a more decent apartment or uh, getting regular energy, regular heat, uh, warm clothing in the winter. And then it's been pointed out that it would also help reduce family stress and help parents provide a psychologically nourishing environment uh, in which learning and, and social development can do better. I think that's a very important point, and, and research has documented how important a low, lower level of stress can be to the child's welfare. Stress is a big factor. If people have money, they're less worried about the rent. They're less worried about the electricity and power. They're less worried about not being able to feed their kids well. Kids go, do go hungry in America. They and, may the kids, not and the kids respond to their parents' stress. Uh, they, they can't help but notice that they're growing up in a stressful environment. I don't think notice is the right word, but they can't help being affected by mm -hmm. it, by being made unhappy, anxious, fearful. And being told that the thing that they want, that the other kid is getting, they can't have. One mother told me that try to take your kids down the aisle when they're crying for, I don't know, frosted flakes or a box of uh, ice cream sandwiches, and you tell them they can't have it. Part of this is it's not – some of these items are simply not on the uh, food list that you can use, use food stamps for. Now, Mark – R. Rank, a professor of social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis, wrote in the Washington Post recently that he and a growing number of academics believe 
the government should give monthly cash allowances without conditions to every family with kids. Uh, and the way that that would be resolved is that the higher income families would um, have most of that money taxed away. It I think just... he was quoting my plan because mm -hmm. that was in a very uh, a review I liked very much in the Washington Post this Sunday. Um, but more and more academics believe that we should give allowances unconditionally. That is to say, to everybody. Yeah, without requirements. In Latin America, they have these cash. They have these cash allowances where they require that the kid goes to school, goes to get proper medical care gets books and so forth. That might sound good, but we shouldn't be telling parents how to raise their kids. It's, it's uh, condescending, it's paternalistic, and that's, I think people find that damaging. Well, how do you answer the so-called bootstrappers who insist that a monthly dividend would discourage even so-called decent people from working and, uh, and those who fear that corporations would exploit a governmental allowance for children so that they could continue to underpay their employees who are parents. Well, the, on the first point, there's very little evidence that occurs, surprisingly. It's much more evidence and much more trustworthy evidence that people use this money for their kids in productive ways in Europe, uh, in Canada, and even in some South American and uh, Latin countries. Uh, uh, Latin American countries in general. Uh, on the second point, there will be some. Corporations will be able to take advantage of this to some degree by keeping wages down. That's always a balancing act. But I think the idea of giving money for these kids far, the value of that far outweighs the damage done by allowing corporations to pay lower wages. Now, I can't imagine, the, as, as logical as these proposals are, I can't imagine that uh, the, the current Congress would pass such legislation, uh, and uh, at least the current president would sign it into law even if Mitch McConnell allowed it to well, become a law. Right. Let's put, the, uh, let's put the current president aside. and The sooner we do that, the better. There are a majority of Senate Democrats who want to pass a much more liberal program much more generous program, let me get away from the political words, a much more generous program that we, than we have now. Something like 47 or 48 are supporting something like what's called an American Family Act or somewhat less generous acts. The Ways and Means Committee is supporting it. Congresswoman DeLauro is supporting it. There's a good chance something like that could pass. It would raise the current child credit, which is now $2,000 a year, to $3,000 a year. But more important, that legislation would cover all children. Right now, the $2,000 a year, which is much too low to begin with, is not, uh, one-third of kids are not eligible for that $2,000 a year because it depends on work. The new program would reduce the dependency on work and make the money refundable to all kids, whether their parents make a dollar a year or not. So right now we're relying on tax credits as a way of uh, reimbursing parents who are, uh, are at the poverty level? Yeah, let me step aside a little bit from the book. This is my big disappointment in America. Under LBJ and for a few years thereafter, we gave people money if they were poor. They needed money, we gave them money. Then America became a particularly 
conservative nation in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, in part based on literature which was highly propagandistic. Charles Murray is an author and so forth. Although Charles Murray is supporting some kind of a program along these lines, yeah, but interestingly. He, uh, He's cash, come around? But eliminate all other welfare programs, ah. that kind of thing. Uh, there are some people like that. Um, but uh, uh, what, what happened, I think um, I lost my train of thought. But in any case, the country got, became much more conservative. We were talking about tax credits. Yeah, work, and they believed they wanted to tie all welfare to work, work. You had to work to get welfare. And this became, I think, uh, a true undermining of the welfare state in America and the social net. But the unemployment rate is still fairly high, even though the president brags that it's lower than it's been in the past. I don't think the unemployment rate itself is very high, but it's measured poorly. Um, well, if you're unemployed, you can't you, you can't satisfy any of these needs. Sometimes people you, are not unemployed because they choose to be, but because they can't get a job. Even if you are employed, the wages are so low at the bottom end now that it doesn't often doesn't put you over the poverty line. But the, uh, I think people are generally um, – uh, the issue with unemployment, let me go back to that, is that fewer people are looking for jobs, mm -hmm. and therefore they don't show up as unemployed in the unemployment rate. And why aren't they looking for jobs? Because they, I, I think they they've been think discouraged. I think they're giving up. I think the wages they're being offered are low. What's changed that a little bit, thankfully, has been the higher minimum wage in many states. What is it? 17 or 18 states now have significant minimum wages. That's been an extraordinary uh, achievement in this time. Well, a higher minimum wage is something like $15 an yeah. hour. That's not very much to live on. It's a lot better than the 725 they got before, let me uh -huh. put it that way. And, you know, we do have companies who probably who hire hordes of, uh, hire hordes of people to— stampede Washington to present their case that lower wages are good for them and therefore good for America. Companies like Walmart and Amazon pay very low wages, and partly they depend on government programs such as Medicaid so that their people at least have some health insurance. They won't pay them health insurance. Some of them even encourage their employees to sign up for food stamps. Indeed. And I, and I just heard that Amazon... Uh, employs a half a billion people throughout all of its various facilities. That's a lot of people. A lot and of most people. Most of them low paid at the same time that uh, Amazon itself uh, hardly pays anything in taxes. Well, it's outrageous that they pay no taxes. But when you have that many employees, even a quarter more per hour is a lot of money and eats into your profits and your stock prices. But the fact that they don't pay taxes, you know, a company like Walmart does pay taxes. Maybe not enough, but Amazon pays almost none, and we're not doing anything about and it. And then it wanted the city to pay for a heliport if they opened up a facility in Queens. Yeah, I was certainly opposed to that, and so many of my friends favored it. Uh, they because they thought it understand. was going to bring jobs. To as we believed, as some of us believed, Amazon will come to New York anyway because they need New York more than we need them. 
Why does it need New York rather than any other hub? Because we have so, so many employees of some ability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're near so many uh, suppliers. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We are listener-supported nonprofit radio. My guest is Jeff Madrick, former economics columnist for the New York Times and a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and The Nation, and the editor of Challenge Magazine, director of the Bernard L. Schwartz Rediscovering Government Initiative, and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, and author of numerous books. The one we are discussing is Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. It is published by Knopf. And uh, talking about poverty, uh, joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lend, <laughs> to talk a bit about the situation that WBAI faces on a regular basis. Uh, and then we'll get back to Mr. Madrick in just a moment. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Hello, everyone. And all joking aside, of course, uh, we would never compare our own situation to some of the very dire uh, personal situations. But we don't take anything from the government. But we don't take anything from the government. You know, listening back to this really fascinating interview for the last half hour, one thing that that struck me is, you know, so much of this is just a a cash distribution issue. Uh, I mean, I I realize this is very overly simplified, but uh, so many, you know, the the classic 1% argument, right? So few people have so much that even the most defenseless among us, children, don't have basic necessities to survive. Now, as Leonard mentioned, our own need financially here at WBAI as a completely listener-supported, non-corporate-sponsored radio station is great. No ads. No ads, no underwriting, no corporate fund matching. Look, we would never expect anyone in one of the difficult financial situations that Leonard and Jeff Madrick have been discussing to uh, to even be thinking about contributing to something like a public radio station. But for those of you out there that are more comfortable, that do have the basic necessities, that, that have uh, an open mind and an open heart to do something to help other people who may not be able to step up, we're asking you to go to the phone right now and call 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. Uh, again, the number is 516-620-3602, or the website, give to WBAI.org. Any amount is greatly appreciated, 
But if anyone wants to become a BAI buddy, that's a sustaining member of the station who makes a contribution of $10 or more a month, taken out of your credit card or debit card, however you want to do it, we would be delighted to send you a free copy, autographed copy of Invisible Americans, the book that Leonard and Jeff have been discussing today. A really important book, we thought, when we received it. And the reason that we asked Mr. Madrick to come on our show, uh, one of those, uh, one of the, the, the kinds of topics that we address regularly on this show, but get short shrift elsewhere. And uh, that uh, we see our mission on Leonard Lopez at Large talking about the things that other people are not talking about that are beyond the, th the top three breaking news stories that you get on cable t uh, news every night. Well, right. I mean, you might be listening to this saying to yourself, why am I going to pay a radio station? I've got media coming out of my ears. I've got, uh, you know, 100 podcasts I need to catch up on. I've got cable including news ours. going, <laughs> including ours. Don't forget the Leonard Lovett at Large free podcast. Well, I'd say today's show is just about the most convincing argument that Leonard or I could make of why you would donate to a show uh, like this, Leonard Lopate at Large, and a station like this, WBAI 99.5 FM New York. Uh, name another show that's going to be doing a deep dive like this for an entire hour uninterrupted, except for the sound of our voices right now, on child poverty. Uh, I, I think... Very few hands, if any, would go up when you ask that question across the media landscape. Now, if you asked a different question, is child poverty important? I think uh, it would be pretty hard to find someone who's going to try to argue the opposite direction. But this is what happens in the media landscape that we have, right? These issues might be valued on some uh, on some level or in some empty way, but do they get the time? Do they get the treatment? Do they get the research and the attention that we do our best to bring you five days a week on Leonard Lopate at large? I don't know if they do. Uh, one other thing that uh, that I wanted to bring up, Leonard, just speaking of five days a week, uh, you know, some of our listeners might have noticed that we've been preempted the last couple days for uh, fun drive programming. Now, we never like to be preempted. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, to be completely honest, we have not been able to meet our goals for the show yet this drive. Now, the good news is we've still got an, uh, another uh, couple weeks here, a week and a half or so of the drive. Uh, I'm sorry, another two weeks. Um, so there's time. But if you're irritated every time you reach for your your radio dial at 1 p.m. on a weekday and find that we've been preempted for fun drive programming, there's only one way to stop it, and that's by calling 516-620-3602 or going to the website give to wbai.org. One last time, if you become a BAI buddy today for a sustaining contribution of $10 or more a month, we would be happy to send you an autographed copy of Jeff Madrick's Invisible Americans. And remember that the excuse given for Pacifica taking us off the air in October was that we were just not able to pay all of our bills. And uh, so they saw a way out, of, or some people there did, of selling our license because we are in the middle of the dial and very valuable. We have a commercial license, even though we are a non-commercial station. 
and uh, suddenly millions of dollars would go to other people, but we would be off the air and you'd be getting either a commercial station or you'd be getting the kind of uh, pablum that uh, unfortunately they, they ran during those weeks that we were off the air. Right. I mean, we've been able to keep the wolves at bay, and we have won for now, just so there's no one out there thinking— Because the courts have been on our side. The courts have been on our side from day from the very first ruling. Uh, you know, just so you don't think you're throwing uh, good, good money after bad here, I guess, as the cliche goes. But yes, send a message to the Pacifica Network. Send a message to management. Send a message to this entire station— and to the world that you're tired of these digestible TV dinner news segments and these cookie cutter interviews with the same questions. What made you write this book? What's your next book? You know, if you value the depth that we offer you on the show, it's, you know, it's there's only one way to let us know uh, that really counts, even though we love all your praise. But, uh, you know, there's there's a very harsh, uh, unforgiving bottom line that we need to make to meet in order to be able to continue to bring you this show five days a week. Uh, so we hope that you'll step up. I'm going to let you guys get back to this fascinating conversation. But one last time, that phone number is 516-620-3602. And for real, the last time now, give to WBAI.org. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show and the station, thank you so much for your support. And thank you, Jesse. And we're back with Jeff Madrick. His book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty, published by Knopf. Well, congratulations on winning that court fight for the time being. Yeah, well, uh, because we had right on our side, actually. But, uh, you know, and sometimes it, that, that doesn't always happen in America, as uh, we're discussing. Uh, I, I was thinking uh, about cases, shows that I'd done in the past with uh, people like Alice Waters talking about uh, nutritious food. And we would get calls from listeners saying, uh, all the stuff you're talking about is great, except that I can't afford to buy it. Um, I only can afford, at best, to get the least expensive stuff at my local supermarket. That's another consideration here because you want your children to grow up eating nutritious food. Well, one of the most obvious things about poor kids is they are often obese. They have uh, early diabetes. They go to doctors, and the doctors warn them, warn the parents strictly, change that diet. The reason is the bad food is cheap. The expensive food is so, is more expensive, often much more expensive, relatively speaking. Uh, so the the health of kids is deeply affected by the food they eat because the food is cheap. And nutritious food, uh, it would be nice to get some kind of subsidy. If you go to Europe and so forth, go to the food cafeterias, the food is much more nutritious than the cafeterias. Well, right now, there's the, the, the Trump administration is talking about cutting back on the nutritious food programs that uh, Michelle Obama kind of forced on schools around America. Uh, I can't say enough about the the Trump administration's attitudes towards poor people. It's outrageous. This retrogression, just, you know, I think about how optimistic I was as a child or a teenager in the 60s and early 70s, and it's all turned to uh, mush or something worse. One of your And, and why do you think that is? <laughs> because you would have thought that improvement 
would have encouraged people to want to do better? Well, we're not improving. You know, m- many of us do not feel the improvement. Aren't Instead, we better than we were before the war on poverty? Oh, the poverty issue. Yeah, we. The war on poverty helped, and the poverty rate is lower than it otherwise would have been. But the poverty crept. Poverty rate crept up under, under Ronald Reagan as it by and large stayed there. And mm-hmm. as I say, and this is a very important point, we don't measure poverty properly. That's a political issue. If we measured it poverty, it would be one out of four or one out of three kids. One out of three kids, imagine that. Richest country in the world allowing that to occur. Are you making a case for a universal basic income? For poor kids, for kids in general. For people poor. I'm not really making a case for all, You're not doing the, the all people. It's just too expensive. Because right now people. that has become a big issue. Somebody just sent me uh, a uh, something uh, on Facebook, an image of Bernie Sanders in front of a Soviet flag. Yeah. So and right now we're going through a whole thing where this is all about communism and a communist yeah. plot. Bernie Sanders is not even a real socialist. He's a social democrat. He's re- like, uh, like the welfare states, let's say, of Norway, of, of the Scandinavian nations. It's not socialism. And what really, the problem with socialism, and I, I wonder what your view is on this, Leonard. The problem of my, social- My opinions are not relevant here, but- The problem with socialism in the old days, and the, real, the reason it failed, was central management of almost everything and dictatorship. Well, communism wasn't really socialism. It was state capitalism. Exactly. So uh, it annoys me some. I do, uh, I do want to make one other point. People love to say it's the behavior of black women that's causing poverty. They have too many kids. They have kids so they can get welfare, which they can't really do anymore. The truth is the no- it's basically – and then, then even progressive institutions say – if there were fewer single mother families, we'd solve the problem. Well, here is the truth of the matter when you do international comparisons. There, is many, there are as many single mother families in Europe per capita, that is controlled for the size of their population, as there are here, almost as many. Mm-hmm. The difference is our single mothers are poorer. We don't help them a- adequately. We don't have child care. We don't have cash allowances. Uh, Andrew Young tried to make the case for universal basic income, and now he's dropped out of the presidential race. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, Charles Murray has, although for kids, kind of, yeah. uh, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes has as well. Yeah, I talked to them. I still believe it's too – it's so expensive it's impractical. Let me emphasize what my program would cost America, according to myself and other academics, $100 billion a year. The cost of a Yang-type program is in the trillions of dollars a year. But right now we have a, a, a trillion, um, what, $3 trillion deficit or something like that? So Another problem we face. I want to make, make another point, Leonard, that I don't discuss much in the book. Even if the Democrats win the presidency, even if they win the Senate, they're going to be hobbled partly by their own mistaken assumption that austerity is the right financial principle in America, that we must make reducing the federal budget our priority. We can spend more money, especially if it's for productive uses, like making kids more uh, better workers 
and like infrastructure and other public investment. And uh, I, I'm very worried that even if the Democrats win, and as you might be able to tell, I'm certainly going to pull for that, they will begin to make the wrong decisions, and a lot of the moderate Democrats will keep saying, well, we can't afford that, even the program I propose for child poverty. Well, as we pointed out, Bill Clinton signed a Welfare Act uh, that had been voted for by many Democrats. Indeed. And under Bill Clinton, public investment, the kind that would have helped our economy become more productive and distributed the benefits of the economy more fairly, was a lower proportion of the GDP under Bill Clinton than it was in the final year of the Ronald Reagan presidency. So help the Democrats, too. Should we see the, the staggering number of American children who are destitute, 17.5%, and the even larger fraction who are near poor, as a moral tragedy that demands some uh, direct response? I think it is a deep moral tragedy and a scar. Because we haven't talked nation. about morality. We've been, well, except the, the critics talk about morality, the, these uh, freeloading welfare. Oh, yeah, the people. immoral poor. Yeah. It's the immoral majority here hmm. that won't help the poor. Surely it's a moral problem. The idea that you insist that if they only worked harder or had better attitudes or improved behavior, they would be fine, is an outrageous lie. They, there are serious structural problems, especially at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum. We've got to do something about it. But my point is we can do something about kids right away without solving all of those very difficult problems. The Depression led to the, the New Deal. Uh, that was a rather dr drastic yeah, yeah. cause. Uh, are we going to need something like that? or I don't know? think so. Because I, it, uh, we did have the Great Recession, right, we and we se already seem to have forgotten what happened almost there. Almost immediately, and we didn't adopt many social programs. And also, let's keep in mind the great social programs of the 1960s occurred in a time of prosperity. It occurred, in my view, partly because of the prosperity. People felt like they could be generous. Now people don't feel like they can be generous because of 40 years of stagnant wages and uh, no rise in the minimum wage. It's, uh, the country is really, it fell into a hole that it's very hard to get out of, partly because of ideology and mistaken beliefs. Uh, that, that was what I was going to ask you about. What if factual evidence and, and factual arguments aren't enough to change hearts and minds because we're talking to some degree about people whose minds are already made up? Well, my only answer to this is keep pressing the facts. I can't... Uh, I did my share of marching in the 60s and 70s. I hope others march now. But I, I, uh, uh, I think the fa I can only hope that the facts will stand out over time. Well, Barack Obama was not the most leftist president we've ever had. And yet, no, if you hear all. the rhetoric uh, about him, You'd think that he was he brought us to the brink of communism. Well, Barack Obama be believed in the aforementioned austerity. He was worried about balancing the budget. He wasn't aggressive enough on social policies, in my view. The last couple of years were better. So I regret the lost opportunity there. I agree with that completely. And it doesn't mean—and again, I say if the Democrats 
take over. I'm not sure they will do the right thing and some of the old repressive ideas will come back. Like the culture idea, that there is some kind of black subclass culture that leads to all of this behavior. They can't control themselves is a favorite notion. It's just not true. They don't have opportunities. Well, obviously racism isn't something that's easily overcome. It's been with us for a very long time. And uh, despite the Civil War and everything that followed, uh, we continue to see, uh, well, Rush Limbaugh said that uh, the slave owners, uh, that, that Caucasians really should not feel guilty about slavery. Uh, so, uh, and, and he just was given the highest, uh, highest award the president yeah. could give somebody. So, um, to some degree, is this just linked to the prejudices that uh, go so deep that uh, they they have no logical basis? They just, well, racism. Ra- racism is a big part of why we have. Child and then, of course, now we have all of those those people from South and uh, and Central America coming right. in those, and going on welfare. All those uh, untrustworthy dark people, <laughs> but um, you, you know the irony is. White people get a, high, a higher proportion of the welfare budget, defining welfare broadly, than people of color because there are so many white poor people. People don't seem to understand that. So when you fight child poverty and refuse to consider uh, proposals like my own and those of others, there are many out there, uh, you're hurting white people as well. And yet I think racial, pov- racial prejudice and it's mostly against African-Americans. Uh, racial prejudice is the underlying cause of the problem or an underlying cause of the problem. Do you think that the white people who are the recipients of this help are even aware of the fact that uh, there is a, a divide here? I, I, you know, it's hard for me to say that. I haven't run across that. I've seen white people grateful for the help. Because I, I haven't looked at the statistics as to who's voting for for conservatives it's, and who's yeah, voting it's for It's a good point. I think a lot of people who get food stamps in the current election cycles probably vote Republican or vote for Trump. I think there's a great deal of bitterness, of anger, and uh, they think somehow Trump will relieve them of, uh, of the people who suppress them. I, I, I think that's compounded by inherent racism. Are you encouraged at all by the kinds of reviews this book has received? I'm encouraged. Glowing one in the well, the Washington Post. I guess we would have expected it. Well, I once got a bad review in the Washington Post, but I've mostly gotten good reviews. I'm very happy about them. The Washington Post was a very intelligent review written by a scholar, and the New York Times, which will be out in the paper Sunday, was another glowing review. So yeah. I'm oh, very happy. Next about Sunday, that. we're going this to see This coming it. Sunday, there'll be a New York Times review. And well, it's a very nice one. Well, I, I have really enjoyed talking with you, despite the fact that this is a troubling topic. Yeah. Can I say one other quick thing? You could say more than one other oh, thing. Oh, good. So let me, can I say five or six? So, uh, my organization, the Rediscovering Government uh, Institution, is going to continue to pursue these subjects and do public programs and do more research. But two issues we haven't discussed. The poverty rate is determinedly low in America, purposely low. We're going to work on trying to reform that 
Uh, there have been reforms. They haven't gone far enough. And one number we didn't mention, very good researchers say that child poverty costs the American economy $1 trillion a year. Hmm. So even if you don't think this is a moral issue, it's a financial one. Thank you again so much for being on our show. Jeff Madrick, M-A-D-R-I-C-K. His book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Costs of Child Poverty, published by Knopf. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can leave your comments on any of those sites. We hope you'll join us tomorrow when Robert P. Kreese will discuss his book, The Workshop in the World, what 10 thinkers can teach us about science and authority. And so we will hope to see you then. And we are in the third week of WBAI's Winter Pledge Drive. Uh, We hope that you'll support this show, and you can do that by going to our website, give2wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602. And everyone who becomes a a BAI buddy, uh, that's for $10 or more a month until you decide you no longer want to be a BAI buddy, but become a sustaining member for an amount that you're comfortable with. Everyone who becomes a BAI buddy will receive a copy of the book that we've just been discussing, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Costs of Child Poverty, by my guest Jeff Madrick. And you're going to sign those Oh, well, we, I look forward to um, being able to send out a lot of those books. Me too. Uh, and <laughs> meanwhile, uh, we hope that listeners, whether you want the book or not, uh, the important thing is to support WBAI, help us uh, stay alive and thrive, and help this show also stay alive and thrive. Again, the number one more time, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org. That's give, and then the number, wbai.org. And do it in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large.